So it's been, it's been a week removed from our study in Galatians. Um, again, I just want to thank you all for praying for me and Julian as we were uh, dealing with a little bit of a stomach bug. Um, and so thank you for praying for us. Uh, we are much better, and it was thankfully one of those like 24-hour things. We were better by Monday, so uh, we, we thank you for that. And mostly I want to thank Bornwell uh, for receiving a call at 7.30 or a text at 7.30 in the morning saying, hey, I need somebody to, to fill in for me, and he was willing to be spirit-led, and, and Doc was too. He was just doing Sunday school that morning, so I'm thankful for serving alongside these elders who, who love the Lord, who serve the Lord, and who are uh, very sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, because that's not an easy ask <laughs> to step in last second uh, and preach, and so I just want to say thank you to them. But I realize that it's been two weeks since we've been in Galatians, and so we might be a little fuzzy on where we're at and uh, uh, what's going on, and so I, I thought it would be appropriate for us to do a little recap of what's been going on in Galatians here. And, um, and so uh, just want to do that quickly. The, the big picture for where we're going to be at today is that Paul is continuing to make his case against the false claims against his authority as an apostle and the false claims about the gospel that he's preaching. And so when we go through that today, you'll see that. Uh, that's where we're at today. But uh, it, if we look closely, there's important lessons through that as well. Um, we're going to begin our time together, together today in Galatians 1, verse 11, which we covered two weeks ago. But I felt for the context um, we should probably start there. You have to remember that in the original writings, there were no chapters or verses, and so it would have been read all the way through. And, and sometimes when we break things up, we, we lose the immediate context of what's happening. So I want to make sure we're, we're all on the same page this morning as we study the Word. So with God's Word open, let's pray, and then we'll read together. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the opportunity this morning to be in your presence, to, to learn from you, to be led by you, and to be remembered of your sacrifice as we have done so already with our time of communion, Lord. And Lord, everything we do this morning is an act of worship for you, to worship you. We thank you for the way that you're working in the lives of those whom you love, and even working in the lives of those who don't even know you yet, Lord, for you are a sovereign God. And Lord, we have your word open this morning, and we want to be reminded what you would have for us through your word. So we, we come open-handed, wanting you, Lord, to speak. So give us ears to hear you, to see eyes to see you a willingness to receive the truth of your word and to be transformed by it. Jesus, we need you this morning. The church does not need me. They need you this morning. So please, speak loudly and clearly to your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'll be reading out of my English Standard Version, which is uh, 
what I typically preach out of. So you can follow along in your own. I'll be starting in chapter 1, verse 11, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 10. This is Paul. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Caiaphas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, uh, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Caiaphas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul states in the, at the end of chapter 1, he says, The gospel I preach is not for man, but from God. And then he defends and he says, Here's my story. Here's my testimony. And a couple of weeks ago, we... we um, we shared about the power of testimony and why it's appropriate for each one of us to be prepared with our testimony because it testifies to God's goodness. It's a defense against the attacks that the day we live in is seemingly at a rise where more and more Christians are being attacked for their faith. And, and we, if we're not prepared and not ready for those, we will not defend Christ the way that we ought to. He starts out here in chapter 2 with verses 1 and 2 
by saying, then after 14 years. So this is clearly a continuation of the point that he's making in chapter, at the end of chapter 1. It's a continuation of his argument. Again, remember, there's no chapters or verses in the original, the original text. And so he's continuing on to make his point. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaimed to the Gentiles. We see that, uh, can you guys click on the slideshow for me so I have control here? There we go. We see Paul defending the gospel in verses 1 through 2. He continues his defense of the gospel, and he's continuing to, to defend the false claims about his apostolic calling, his authority. Um, and he starts out by saying, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and taking Titus along with me. Um, he says that they went up because of a revelation. Now, I realized I was convicted in the Lord last week, as, or the week I was preparing this message, that I might not have spoke very clearly on this revelation word. And so I just want to be clear what I intended to say. Um, the, the Greek word for revelation here is apocalypsis, right? And uh, what I hope came across last week was Revelation in the sense of revelation of God and how to relate with God, with uh, revelation of authority, uh, such as in Scripture, um, that, that type of revelation is closed. There is no further revelation to mankind about what it takes to know God and how to relate with God. That type of a revelation is closed. What we see here, how Paul is using revelation, he's, he's talking about how God revealed to him that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. This kind of revelation does still happen today. We hear stories of Jesus coming to Muslims in their dream. God is God, and he can reveal himself. It will never contradict the truth of Scripture, but God is God. And he can make himself known, and he can reveal himself, and sometimes he does. We hear all sorts of stories from international workers serving in, in Muslim countries where God is showing up in their dreams. He's revealing himself. He's making himself known to them. Now, this is not new authoritative knowledge, and that's the difference, right? God isn't saying to these Muslims, thus saith the Lord, this is a new command. No, He's revealing himself to an individual who otherwise doesn't know who he is. That type of revelation still does happen because God is still on the move. God is God. And I wanted to just make clear uh, the distinction there because I may have sounded maybe like a cessationist last week, and that is not, <laughs> that is not who, I, who I am. God still moves. God still speaks. God still reveals himself to us in many different ways. He reveals himself to us in nature and, and through his word and through other believers, and he speaks. Um, but that isn't in an authoritative new knowledge way new authoritative knowledge way, okay? It's not scripture, in other words. Um, and so hopefully that clears that up. Maybe I just made it worse for y'all, and I'm sorry, you can talk to me afterwards. But I, I think the main point is, is that God will still speak to us. 
He still speaks to people. He still reveals himself and who he is. But it isn't to be the same type of revelation that the apostles received to write out scripture from the Holy Spirit. It's not authoritative. And there are some uh, denominations that are claiming that they're hearing new things from God to speak. And they're, 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 they're prophetic and, 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 and claiming it with power. And it's new. That, that doesn't happen. That's not from God. The canon of scripture is closed. And so everything we need to know who God is, is found right here in this book. Hopefully that's clear. Maybe I just made it worse. I don't know. But Paul says that he went up to Jerusalem again because of a revelation. God is clearly speaking and he reveals and he, and he moves us. That type of revelation still exists. And he goes up uh, and he presents the gospel to those who seemed influential. At this point in time in the letter, we don't really know who that is, but it, when we continue reading through, we see in verse 9, he's spending time with James, John, and Peter. And so most likely, those who seemed influential are these three guys. But another thing that, that stood out to me that, that we can easily miss is in verse 1, he says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus. Paul's not doing it alone. He's got two guys that he's training to preach the gospel, and, and they're serving alongside of him, and he's taking him with, uh, with these two guys with him wherever he goes. And I think this is important because Paul understood the importance of, of multiplication. He understood the importance of raising up young guys that could preach and teach and, and, and hold true to the word because he valued the multiplication of the gospel. And it's important to us to understand that. And he takes Barnabas and Titus with him back to Jerusalem. We'll pick up on Barnabas here and Titus in a little bit. But he presents to James, Peter, and John the gospel that he's teaching. Now this is interesting to me because he had just made the claim in the previous chapter uh, defending the gospel that he's teaching by saying, Jesus gave me this gospel. It didn't come from man. So why is he now going to, James, to man to say, hey, here's the gospel I'm teaching. It's kind of weird, right? It's kind of this idea of like, he just made the statement that his gospel didn't come from man, it came from Christ, and yet he's submitting to James, John, and Peter the gospel that he was revealed. And he says, in order that I'm not running in vain, and this is important because I think his submission here shows wisdom and models humility. Paul didn't need to do this, but he sets an example to be examined by James, John, and Peter, the gospel message that he's preaching. And this kind of, this point stood out to me that all leaders, all teachers, 
can fall or veer from truth, and we must stay humble and must allow ourselves to be examined. If the, if the great apostle Paul, who received his gospel message directly from Jesus, went to Jerusalem and submitted to James, John, and Peter the gospel that he was teaching, though he could have had every right to say, I don't need to submit to you, I got this straight from Jesus. And, he, and yet he submits. He's laying a model to all of us to submit to those in authority. And he's showing wisdom and humility for us in this. Moves on to verses 3 and 5, and he continues this defense. This time he, he shifts a little bit uh, from addressing the fault uh, to the man you ever like wake up two hours early and you got all this extra time in the day and then you're late that's kind of how that's kind of how this feels this morning i apologize i paul moves from addressing the false gospel claim to addressing the need for circumcision and he says he he directly addresses the false gospel and he says titus a greek who was a gentile believer was not forced to be circumcised. Here, Titus is with him. He's serving with Paul. He goes to Jerusalem before the, the, the so-called leaders of the, of the church, and they do not force him to be circumcised. Why does this matter? Remember, the church in Galatia was being influenced by these Judaizers, the circumcision party, that were saying and making the claim that the gospel that Paul was teaching was not the true gospel because if they really wanted to be saved, they must also become Jewish. They must also become circumcised. And here he's like, no, 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 listen, we, we just went to Jerusalem and met with the leaders there, and they didn't even force Titus, who is a Greek, a Gentile, they didn't force him to be circumcised. Okay, He's making a defense against this false claim. He says, False brothers have tried to convince James and John and Peter that circumcision was necessary, and Paul calls this an act of slavery. If you look at the word here in verses 3 through 5, says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secret, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. Paul's making this defense. He says, listen, there were guys there of the circumcision party that were brought in to try to convince Peter, James, and John that, uh, that Greek and Gentile believers must be circumcised. And we did not back down. But more importantly, something that stands out here is that he says this idea of adding circumcision to the gospel was an act of slavery. That's strong language. So there's an application here that any requirement for, for salvation beyond repentance and faith in Jesus is a shackle that removes the freedom that we have in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. He, he's saying anything beyond repentance and faith in Jesus is drawing us back into slavery. 
And he says that Paul did not yield in order, he didn't yield to this pressure. And therefore, the gospel is preserved. We must be a people who not only understand the gospel, but also defend the attacks against it. We have to be a people. We live in a day where the gospel's being being twisted and, and, and added to and, and taken away from and, uh, and, and just manipulated in all sorts of different ways, we have to be a people who know and understand the gospel and are able to defend the attacks against it because lives and souls are on the line. Continue on, continues on on verses 6 through 9. And we see here that Paul and Barnabas are now accepted as apostles. The right hand of fellowship means, uh, that, that phrase in, in the Greek means approval or acceptance and agreement. Read here verses 6 through 9. It says, and, f- and from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Basically, Paul's saying there is like, listen, they, they claim to be the ones in charge. That's fine. I submit to them. That's essentially what he's saying. God shows no par- impartiality. Partiality. He says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for the apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Caiaphas and John, Caiaphas there is Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That right hand of fellowship is an approval or an acceptance, an agreement. So basically what we see here is that Paul is, is making it known to the Galatians that all of these, these false claims about my authority as an apostle aren't true. I've been given the right hand of fellowship by, by James, John, and Peter, which in that time would have been the Jewish leaders of the church, those in authority. We also see here that Barnabas is also extended the right hand of fellowship. But remember, Peter, uh, Paul brings Barnabas and Titus with him. But only Barnabas receives the right hand of fellowship. Right? I think this reveals that Barnabas had been serving with Paul long enough to where he was a worker approved at this point, And he was qualified to receive that apostolic ministry as to where maybe Titus is still in the, in the wings being discipled. Right? And so Paul clearly has this generational ministry going on. He says here that uh, Paul was entrusted to preaching to the, the Gentiles and Peter to Israel. And he says, He who worked through, n- notice this, he says, He who worked through Peter worked through me. This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave Paul and Peter this ministry. The same one. So much so that um, this approval 
shows that neither group, neither Paul going to the Gentiles, nor Peter to, the, to Israel had to change anything about the gospel they were preaching. Think about that. Think about the, the, the impact of what I just said. Neither Paul and Barnabas, who received the gospel off in the wilderness, who never checked their gospel with you know, Peter before, and off after 14 years preaching that gospel, submit to Peter, James, and John, the gospel that they're, they're preaching, and they're the same. Only God can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Nothing short of a miracle for that. Then we get to verse 10. And he says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And as I came to verse 10, this felt a little bit out of place for me. It's kind of like adding something at the end of an argument that you're like, why, why was that there? That doesn't fit. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Poor here, defined in uh, Strong's lexicon, says those reduced to beggary, asking alms, destitute of wealth, influence, position, and honor, and the lowly, afflicted, destitute of Christian virtues and eternal riches. This word, poor, has a very literal translation of those of not having much money, but it also has a spiritual understanding of those without Christ, those without an internal inheritance. And so the question then becomes, which poor is Paul eager to remember? Well, in my study, it sounds like most scholars believe the poor in mind here are the poor in Jerusalem, that we do have evidence of Paul taking up offerings as he was on his missionary journey for the poor in Jerusalem. But they could have said that. They could have specifically said the poor in Jerusalem. And it might literally mean that. But I think if we, if we just think about it in the context of what's going on, I lean a little bit more to this spiritual poorness. So it could literally mean unwealthy, or it could also mean spiritually bankrupt, as any soul without Christ is. Let me show you some other places in Scripture where the same exact word for poor is used. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is this financially less off people? Or is this poor in the sense that there's no eternal inheritance? Matthew 11.5 The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Are we talking about the financially unwealthy poor? Are we talking about lost people? 
Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Again, good news to the poor. Is this the financially less off or is this the lost? In Luke 6.20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. There is a reality, there is also a reality that in the pagan and Gentile world, as well as in Judaism, those who were financially poor often had limited access to the temple. So there is a reality, a barrier, if you will, to worshiping God or their gods even in the pagan world, right? So the reality of worship in this day and the culture in which this letter is being written was that if you were financially poor, a beggar, it did limit your access to God. Sometimes applications can be both and. (laughs) And so I think what we see here is that Paul is using physical truths to help us understand deeper spiritual truths. Because in a spiritual sense, all of mankind is spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. We are poor without Jesus. You could have all the money in the world, and without Jesus, you're poor. You're destitute. You're bankrupt. And no amount of good deeds or financial gifts or service or the belief of being a good person can help us out of spiritual bankruptcy. Our behaviors don't add anything to our account, and neither does our worldly status add anything to the eternal account. Only Jesus does. The blood of Jesus. Only Jesus brings us out of spiritual bankruptcy. But only if we respond to the good news with repentance and faith. And the good news is, is that when a soul repents and believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Jesus takes that soul that was eternally bankrupt and transforms it into a soul with an eternal inheritance in heaven. Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1. They also are grafted into the family of God as children and co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8. And I think Paul knew this very truth about the gospel And that is why he was very eager to keep the poor in mind. He knew that God had removed all the barriers for mankind to have a personal relationship with him. And the only way that that was made was through his son, Jesus Christ. So the application here for us is a time of examining we see very, very much after Paul is affirmed and Barnabas is, our, Barnabas is affirmed, they're told to remember the poor, the very thing that he was eager to do. And yes, I think we're to remember the financially less off, but I think the spiritual application here 
knowing where Paul was going. Paul was going to the Gentile world who knew nothing about Jesus, who knew nothing about God, had no way of knowing, and had no way to get to God. He was eager to preach the good news to the poor. So it's time to examine ourselves. How eager am I to share the gospel with the lost around me? How eager am I? And what impacts that eagerness? What gets in the way? I have a a video of some international workers that uh, because of where they're serving, we can't record this portion of our service. So we're going to we're going to close the recording uh, here in just a second, and then I've got a video for us to watch. And then we're going to have some time reflecting on these two questions as we close our time together. So I'll pray, and then we can close our, our recording, and then we'll go, okay? Lord, I thank you for your time, the time and your word this morning, Lord, and Lord, I just pray that um, you would give us ears and open our eyes, Lord, that there are lost souls, poor souls all around us that need to know the gospel, that need to know the good news, that need to be set free from the bondage of this world. And Lord, as was shared in in Sunday school this morning, Lord, you use the church, you use each one of us to spread the gospel. That is the mission of the church, is to go make disciples, to preach the good news. And Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we all come up with excuses. And Lord, it's time, the time is now for us to lay those excuses aside to be raised up. So Lord, would you continue to move in this space as we continue on in our worship of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.